Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Eric Klein. I'm Paul Reismandel. And I'm Jennifer Waits. And on today's show, coming up in a moment, we're going to have uh, some news and observations from Jennifer Waits on the latest in college radio. But I want to talk about what Radio Survivor is for a moment. We're on episode number 236, which in dog years, in podcast years, means we're 100 years old. Um, You know, the average podcast lasts about uh, 30 episodes or so. Seven episodes. And uh, on the one hand, there's nothing special about Radio Survivor that's gotten us to this point. But on the other hand, actually, we have some advice now that we can impart. You know, we were giving out advice uh, for free on episode two, probably, about how to podcast. Oh, but Paul, you had a podcast when you were um, when we were on episode two of Radio Survivor, the podcast. You had had a, a, a show with a um, hundred episodes or so under your belt. I was a radio producer. Oh, more than that, I yeah, it, yeah. Went, it went on for uh, six or seven years. We've all been radio producers for for half a lifetime, if not more. So we have different uh, pedigrees and experiences at community radio and college radio, uh, and we've talked about that on previous episodes. Um, but that's not what I want to talk about today. Well, because I don't think this is advice not only you know for podcasters, but for people who make radio, almost for any creative endeavor, right? right? And especially a creative endeavor where you hope to have an audience of sorts, where you're serving a community, yes, if you will. exactly. And so our community that we've always set out to serve here at Radio Survivor, both on the podcast that you can hear on the internet, as well as the radio show, that airs on low power FM and community radio stations and college radio stations all around the country, as well as uh, Canada, Canada and, and Ireland. Ireland. And we can't wait to add the third international station to that list. Um, we talk about radio that we love here on Radio Survivor. We talk about the sound that we love, and we encounter other people who are excited about either the history of radio in its entirety, the history of community radio or college radio. But we also talk about uh, podcasts, when those things intersect with those sounds that excite us. And um, we've talked a lot in the last like year or two about the archiving of those sounds, which I think has become almost like a... Uh, like a subgenre of this year's show, Radio Survivor. Well, and, and, and it's actually that archive, it, it, that thread is, is, I think, what inspired us for the episode today. I'm going to peel back the mm-hmm. curtain a little bit, is that we had a guest lined up, a regular guest, who unfortunately at the last minute couldn't make it. And that happens, and we know we're rescheduling, so we'll definitely bring you that show. Um, yeah, you we know, can tell listeners. Before, we're going to talk this. about the latest from the Federal Communications yeah, Commission, because that's something else we do on Radio Survivor often. We, we get excited about what goes on at the FCC, because it's, there's a direct impact on how the radio sounds in the United States, based on what policies are being passed. And who owns these stations. Yeah. And those, yeah, yeah. exactly. The this ownership rules are decided upon at the federal level because of what the FCC tends to do, if not what Congress also has the power to change those rules. But what usually happens is there's a a trickle of change so that almost a, you know 10 years later, seven years later, um, the impact of what the FCC does is definitely in our ears or on the airwaves. Or there's a trickle of no change, which also yeah. <laughs> has has a mirror impact. But, but what brought us to this point, um, we're going to brag a little bit, is that uh, we got reviewed in the AV Club. But that's not all. There's been a number of really humbling 
and a humble brag. Right. There's been an there's lately in the last in 2020 Radio Survivor, a project that has been going now for four going on to five years this June, almost five years. We're actually getting a a lot more recognition and praise from the outside world than than frankly what we're used to. And so on the one end, <laughs> we want to talk about that. Because it's very exciting to us. It is. And it also, exciting. yeah, it also shows that um, people are noticing the work. And there's also, uh, I mean, we can talk more. I want to talk more about that later on in this episode, this hour long episode, because I want to make sure that we get to some of the more breaking news yeah. about college radio. Well, well, but uh, I also wanted to mention before we what got underway with college radio, just like, why do we care about college radio as well? And I think this review captured it. This is the funny yeah, thing. The okay, AV okay. Club the review. The AV Club review. So for folks who are not familiar with the AV Club, that's true. Uh, it's a long-running website that's an offshoot of The Onion, which which people know as a satirical newspaper that started out in print, has gone online. Yeah. The AV Club, again, has been around, I don't know if it's been around 20 years, but something like yeah, that. But unlike the, it's facts. It's, but it, it, it's it, coverage it, of culture. Of pop culture in particular. Yeah. Right? Film, but it tends to been smart um extremely online extremely online and many years ago they started weekly reviews of podcasts initially it was really focused on comedy podcasts now they've really grown their coverage it's called podmas comes out every monday um and as somebody who has loved podcasts for a very long time and has been in the podcast industry now professionally for for six years um you know it's something i've i've read regularly although i'll admit i hadn't read it recently and Jennifer, you found this alert in your email, this Google alert, uh, noting that w- there was a blurb about about a show. Yeah. And yeah, Radio Survivor was written about in the in the Onion AV Club for the first time in our 230 and, episodes. And, and it's to us is significant because it's a little bit like you know, it's like Roger Ebert taking notice of your little indie movie. Yeah, right. If that's not a even an antiquated kind of reference, um, you know, it, it, because they. What they pay attention to is, is carefully selected. And I want to read the first line of this review. Yeah. The first line is, The hosts of Radio Survivor can barely contain their unquenchable passion for radio's past, present, and future. And so it's no surprise that audio preservation is a topic near and dear to their hearts. Now, that review, I think, that captures what we're here for and, and, and really – they. They get us, and and the yeah. episode being reviewed is documenting and preserving radio at HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, where we talked uh, with um, with Jocelyn Robinson, Jocelyn Robinson, who yeah. is heading up a project to well, we should have to Jennifer. do just that. Jennifer produced that episode, yes. which means you know radio producers in you know in our world and also elsewhere to peel back the curtain more. Th- today's episode should be called "To Peel Back the Curtain." Um, A radio producer, you know, hosts get to talk to people and ask questions, but the producers are the ones who book the guests and oftentimes, you know, structure the interview, write down the question, get everything scheduled. And so, Jennifer, you produced that episode about historical black colleges and universities and the preserving the sounds of their radio stations. Uh, We should talk about it. Which, I mean, it intersects with so many things that I'm passionate about. And I ran across an article about Jocelyn Robinson's project and and we had actually communicated in the past because we have common interests in college radio history. We both serve on the Radio Preservation Task Force, which is a project of the Library of Congress. So when her project kind of bubbled up to the surface again and, uh, you know, I ran across an article about it, I, I knew that she would be 
a perfect guest. So we had her on to talk about this exciting project. I'm very interested in preserving college radio history. And and I've also been very interested in, in college radio at historically black colleges and universities. And and I know that, you know, since that's a smaller percentage of college radio, um, it's it's perhaps an even, you know, more interesting slice to take a look at. So right. her project was intriguing to me, and it was great to have her on and, and talk about this project that is much more focused. And it can be kind of overwhelming to think about preserving all of college radio history, but to to tackle this smaller Right. Smaller percentage of the pie, um, you know, she can actually try to go and visit all of these stations. Right, because so there's about it, thirty uh, current, you know, existing college radio stations at these HBCUs. So it's a it's an attainable goal, and it's also a really important part of the history in the United States because one of the things that we've talked about on Radio Survivor, especially uh, in the past couple, you know, past couple uh, months since 2019, is that uh, college radio did not just uh, appear on the scene in the 1980s, which is often sort of the origin story that college radio is. Uh, That's right. Is I know the accepted origin story in the imagine that in the zeitgeist. College radio is actually uh, dates all the way back to the beginning of radio, which is the 1920s, and so inter- or, or, or earlier, or really. Earlier, I mean, right. there were experiments in radio happening on college campuses in the late 1800s, so. You know, when you had when you started to have broadcast stations, you know, they were happening at colleges in addition to, you know, in garages and, you know, everywhere else where it was happening. Right. So by on Radio Survivor, when we get excited about college radio, we're not like off in some weird cul-de-sac where we're separate from our love of community radio in general. When we get excited about college radio and what it's like today and what kind of radio students are making right now or what kind of community radio is getting made by community members at college radio stations, uh, we're actually we're, we're trying to wrap our arms around all of the kinds mm-hmm. of radio we love. And th- coming to that understanding has been actually part of the exciting work of 236 episodes. Because I think at in episode five, we might have sort of had a different a framework of how we understood college radio fitting in to this radio survivor landscape that we care about. Right. And on the, on the radio survivor show in those early episodes, the idea was that I would kind of replicate my weekly college radio watch column that I have on radio survivor on the website. I would sort of share the news of college radio <laughs> every week in a little, in a little section that was That's like right. college radio watch on That's the right. podcast. Because pod- Jennifer Waits uh, because of your love as uh, as one of as a blogger who cared about college radio, uh, what twelve years ago when you founded your blog? Uh, yeah, starting in night in two thousand eight. So yeah, that would be twelve years yeah. ago. Jennifer Waits has become sort of the uh, de facto journalist of record for college radio in this last decade. Sadly, possibly because there hasn't been another uh, job opening. Right. For for this at existing, you know, the New York Times does not have a journalist devoted to college radio. There is. Yeah, there is no college radio beat. Yeah, uh, perhaps anywhere. Right. And sadly, at, some, at one time, there might have been uh, journalists who focused on college radio at, at trade uh, magazines. But uh, those kinds of uh, positions are few well, and, between now. And, I mean, and to look even more broadly, 
there really aren't that many publications that even have a radio beat anymore. And, and when I started writing about college radio in 2008, there were more national there were no, there were more publications, you know, in major cities that might have a radio columnist writing about radio news yeah. from that community, and those those types of columns have really trickled away. So yeah, they kind of tri- trickled away because there was a decline in the localism of radio. So having right. a radio column in in certain markets became, frankly, there was less to report on because. Uh, there was less local talent. There was less local investment. There was less unique programming that was local. And simultaneously, there was less localism in the journalism and print media to to go along with that. So there'd be less... Yeah, right. There's less individuals writing about less news. And certainly, you know, um, the number of pages devoted to the arts and the media in local newspapers has declined since then, too. So, you know, I see less television coverage as well. So it's part of a sad turn of events for me as a consumer and a reader and a lover of those types of columns. Yeah. And we care about radio uh, disappearing in this way um, or being disregarded in yeah, this way. Yeah, it's really being disregarded it's because still radio, around. radio is still around. Radio still reaches well over 90% of people in the United States people on a People are making basis. exciting radio that that is uh, innovative and is changing the way radio is made on a weekly basis, and yet it's not, it's not getting paid and, and more people are level. being turned on to sound right, in general, whether it's streaming, whether it's podcasting, whether it's radio, and, and increasingly, I think that that they don't differentiate. Well, we started our podcast, Radio Survivor, which is now a radio show. Uh, what like like three days after podcasts became hot or like 10 days before <laughs> podcasts became hot. I, I don't know. I think we, I don't, not sure we were, we were, we it's had a spectrum. quite that. Yes. It's a spectrum. Well, in a lot of ways, podcasting year zero starts at uh, serial and we were, but we, we started our podcast before serial. Did we? Is that right? One day. I'm not sure. Not important. I, I don't know that, that that's right. Not important. But I mean, Paul should check on what I just said. But what I mean to say that what facts are important. But what I'm saying is that uh, we've been passionate about radio and sound uh, and would have cared about radio on the Internet. We came eight months after Serial. Oh, right in the minute. We eight. came eight months after Serial. Wow. October 2014 is so, the debut of Serial. Facts are important. I was wrong. Not going to edit that out because no, also, no, it's just we're just trying yeah. to situate. And Paul and I uh, had conversations to found this podcast, Radio Survivor, uh, prior to to actually mm-hmm. sitting down in front of our microphones. So I'm going to still. Well, it was all about putting into praxis, right? It was taking these things that we love radio, we talk about it, and and podcasting presented an opportunity for us to do radio without necessarily having to have a home at a given station, yeah. right? Where where whereas Jennifer, you you have a home at a station at a college station where you do a music program, and it wouldn't necessarily have been uh right of us or wouldn't have been even what you wanted to do to take over what you already do with what we do here right yeah i yeah i I like to keep all of that completely separate right Uh, it's understandable right and and we and i didn't have a home in a particular station either and so podcasting offered us the opportunity to start this in a way which folks who share our enthusiasms yeah. and our passions could access it, right? And that's the the wonderful thing about podcasting is that it's basically, you know, radio on the internet, on demand, and, you know, it gets talked a lot about how there's a low barrier to entry and that it is true. And, you know, and sometimes in the industry it gets talked about 
a little pejoratively because it means there's a lot of furtive attempts. Yeah. There's well, a lot of folks also, who try to do a show and don't stick with it I'm gonna, or, and don't succeed. But to me, that's that's not a failure. That's yeah. in that's an important component to let folks try it and succeed or fail. Well, I'm going to and I'm going to take what you're just talking about with podcasts and how they're conceived of in the public imagination right now. And sometimes one of the problems I think is or something I'm obsessed with is the idea of podcasts being a place uh, uh for me to um you know, achieve greatness quickly by jumping onto a microphone. But on the other hand, there are such an important place right now in the world where people who are very passionate about something can uh, share that passion. And that's what makes them an important medium. And that's we've talked about that on this show almost every episode is that the sharing of that passion and then the preservation of that is always so – it's such a unique opportunity. And, you know, com- I mean community radio was that before, that people who had a certain kind mm-hmm. of unique passion – could, but under the radar in many ways. Yeah, not, could, not could reach an audience. Didn't have a lot of visibility in, in, in the national mainstream, certainly, and very often even in the communities in which we're at the time lucky to have stations. And I think that what we've kind of – our through line here can be charted in also in two moments. When we started this show, a tagline which was suggested by a listener that we took up was uh, the sound of strong communities. And I think that's still true. But we shifted because as we as you do these projects, as you do these yeah. things, you learn – you should learn in the process. You learn also what communities are out there. You learn – you know, there, there should be this dialogue that is happening in, in, in all sorts of ways that are very unorganized and often chaotic with listeners – other folks who share your passions, folks who suddenly come in and learn about what you do, and folks that you learn about and, and that we often reach out to as guests. It's a dialogue. It's this tremendously chaotic dialogue, and that's why we shifted to this idea of for the love of radio and sound because radio is key and core because it is it was the first truly mass electronic medium. It you know it, it is foundational in in the development of mass media around the world, and it also has changed the history of sound. It has changed the history of sound as well. Because right? the music industry, which is a, still a big thing right now, and, and you know, and, wouldn't be what it was without radio's influence. And we've talked about that on right. recent episodes. And because of uh, Jennifer, because of your. Um, the way that you network and you've been involved with the Radio Preservation Task Force at the Library of Congress. And so you have this contact with, with folks, academics, uh, especially young academics now, who right. are engaging, re-engaging with sound and radio in a much more broad sort of scope. You brought that element, I think, into Radio Survivor and helped us understand that and pushed yeah. our boundaries away from being too particularly Catholic about radio and right. or podcasting. Yeah, and you know, I've long been interested in sound art, and that's something I've written about on Radio Survivor. I think before the podcast even started. So, I think the the radio show slash podcast gives opportunities to talk about sound art, transmission art, sound studies, which scholars, you know, are very interested in sound studies, and you know, why is it that historically we have we have tended to bias the visual over the audio when we're looking at pieces of media. So I think all of that is then embraced when you use the word sound rather than radio or rather than community. Uh, because I think we all realized it's, 
community is part of maybe all of these things, but sound is is a mo- maybe a more appropriate way to look at the types of things that we're analyzing on Radio Survivor. Yeah, and that's it's that kind of growth I think that is an important point for uh, a, a producer, right? Whatever your output is, to to think about and to be to be open to. It's one of the exciting reasons to start podcasting is that you can. F- you want to start with focusing on something you love to begin with, or at least are passionate about. Doesn't have to be in love, but at and then you have to repeat it every week and be open mm-hmm. to finding out what path you're on. Yeah, and, and it's exciting. It's I neat. mean, there are moments, and I may have mentioned it on the show, but certainly uh, both of you, Eric and Jennifer, you know. I mean, there have been moments when when I've been burned out, <laughs> right? Of doing all of this, we've had Radio Survivor as a website. Uh, for more than 10 years, this show now for, for going on to five this June. And there are moments when you're like, well, why am I doing this? Are we, what, what new, what are we doing differently and new? And, and well, you can, one of the, one you of can the, box yourself in. One of the, one of the, the, one of the risks and the rewards of a radio show is that you have a contract, either explicit, legal, or just, um, more of a handshake agreement with the world that you're not going to take a week off. And if you do take a week off, you'll prepare, a, you'll make arrangements, yeah, which is different than a to, podcast for someone to fill your spot. And it's, it's kept us, it's kept us going when we were tired and we've come up with, you know, I mean, in a lot of, you know, Jennifer has come uh, to become much more of a leader of the content of the podcast since, you know, on episode one, Jennifer had more of a, uh, you know, a marginalized contributing role. editor yeah. role, and you now, know. yeah, now, now, you know, uh, half the episodes Jennifer produces, and those those episodes have really also changed the direction of the show, mm-hmm. and that's been a great uh, a great shot in the arm for for the work. Um, yeah, because I think we all, I mean, with Radio Survivor, the project as a whole, you know, we all we're volunteers, we're doing this in our spare time, so we all have yeah. to find a way to be engaged and excited about the work. And so I I think that means that, you know, sometimes what we're doing changes over time because of that. And, um, you know, there might be uh, changes in the media landscape that are really, really exciting. And so we turn our focus to that for a while or, uh, you know, quirky stories. I really enjoy quirky stories about radio and that keeps me excited when I run across things that are super unusual and, and things that I can't figure out, things that are puzzles. Right. Well, and in a lot of ways, Radio Survivor started off as a, as a show about the immediate present or the future of radio. And I, it became a much more uh, – uh, my mind was wide – was blown wide open when I realized that our show was also very much about the past and history. And how and much we could learn from radio history. Whereas preservation is a present activity, right? It ties yeah. these things together um, because we are really noting that connection between history and and the future. They're intricately tied. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, uh, you know, a quote that the review What's the in name? the AV Club pulled out, uh, I think actually really – really got at this, really made sense of this particular point. And again, you're reading from Jason Randall Smith's article in the AV Club. Yeah, in which, uh, you know, he pulled a quote from Jocelyn Robinson, our guest, talking about preserving radio at HBCUs. 
And Jocelyn said, quote, we carry around archives of our lives in our phones. That's not how people thought in the past. And and she really, in, in that one sentence, bridged that gap of how so much of radio in particular, but so many things were ephemera to be lost, destined to be lost, destined never to be preserved. Yeah, just like moments in our lives that we live. Yeah. And, and, we, and we've transitioned to this moment in which – Many of us, through our smartphones in particular, are preserving and our use of media, right? But are preserving much more of it than we used to. Even you right. know, I mean, sure, you're, you're, I mean, your your parents may have had a camcorder, right, right. and preserved certain things, or or a film camera may have preserved certain things. But now people have but now preservation of their a record of their lives on their nearly Instagram constant, page, right? A record of their thoughts on their Twitter stream, and and people carry that assumption forward to something like radio or podcasting, and 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 sometimes I've talked to folks who are surprised why why wouldn't there been a pre- why would have that there be a record of that i mean right why didn't it they was save broadcast that you know why or why wasn't so in running tape right i mean well for the, and then you know and, and similarly you know we run across you know now we just assume that the present is being preserved you know everything on our phone yeah. and that's not the case either like very recent internet history yeah could be lost. So the yeah, it may have been recorded but it wasn't preserved, right? Exactly. So it's um the past is a, is good instruction for the present mm-hmm. and and these conversations just get so nuanced and and complex when you think about, you know, uncovering, you know, seeking out, going on a treasure hunt for items from the very distant past. But in some cases you're also doing the same for you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. Trying to find audio from the internet from 20 years ago can be very challenging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I want to bridge this over just to, to think about, you know, present day community and college radio and any radio in that kind of spirit, you know, principally driven by by volunteers, often dynamic. In that sometimes, though, one of the traps, I think community radio tends to fall into more so than college radio is getting calcified. Um, because things work, you don't change the schedule. In some cases, you know, we, we, we anticipate that, that listeners get wedded to hearing a particular show at a particular time and, and they can't change. And certainly when you change your schedule, people complain. There will always be people who will be upset and, and, and are not happy about that change. Um, also you take into account the the schedule of the people who make the programs because they're still generally overwhelmingly live. So it's a matter of whether that particular producer or DJ can come to a station at a particular time to produce. Um, and 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 folks will often, as producers, think about their their airtime as 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 property, you know, as something they don't want to give up or ever have to kind of shift. And all that can I think sometimes force a certain conservatism that doesn't allow stations often to grow and change. With the times, with their communities, with their constituencies, um, losing opportunities to gain new listeners or rather for listeners who are coming to your community, either you know, folks who are young and turning into radio listeners or people moving in to have a reason to come to your station and often still losing people who are no longer finding use in your station and they don't tell you. 
It'll tell you I don't need your station, man, because he doesn't do what I need. Sometimes they tell you. <laughs> Mostly they don't. <laughs> I know. Mostly they and don't. The and the ones that do are loud. And the ones that do, we tend to overcount, right? We yeah. tend to take that one call or email and magnify it by a thousand. The one, my, my favorite example is I was uh, here in Portland, Oregon when I first moved here and I found a flyer at a community center that was, that was screaming to the winds, uh, public television station, bring back Lawrence Welk. Right, yes. Lawrence Welk on my public TV station here in Oregon is the a television only, show that that ceased airing in the sixties. This is the right. only place I can get my favorite show, and that's a great example because it's such a niche thing that only a very old person would like. That it, it sort of illustrates like, but that happens all the time in community radio. That right. Show, exactly. You know, we talked about not to pick on anybody. We talked about a polka. A, a, a program that was uh, somewhere at a community radio station it had been the longest running polka show, and any threat of taking it off the air, uh, well, and, and here's the thing: was like war, but, declaration but, of war, right? And and I'll I'll take this this show as an example, not talking about it specifically. And it is possible that polka can grow with the times and with the audience, right? You know, we don't have to necessarily go out and just wipe away something because it looks or smells old. Yeah, right. Um, we we love talking about history. Well, here we on well Radio we Survivor. we constantly hear about you will hear about if you pay attention to, to popular culture at all old forms that get revived. There's revived interest in it, but but it, it it's it's about this reengagement, right? And so maybe the polka show, right, which is why we love college radio so much, is it's young exactly. people's ch- first needs to have that twenty five year old polka lover on yeah. it, and it it shouldn't only be run by the same people who've been doing it for forty years, right. who may not be in touch with what might be a new polka scene and i'm not joking i'm not using yeah, that as we, have, a, we have heard individuals who are of a certain uh more advanced age use the phrase more than once we've heard it before young people don't care about radio and that's why i why, and we, why we hold only, that fundamentally yeah. not to be why i'm evidence. the only person who could produce this show because there is no young person out there who cares and the they, way and, i do and of course the question is have you tried yeah. and and that's where i think college radio often you know is, is less calcified, though not always, um, in part because college radio has an academic schedule. Yeah. It's uh, a weakness ev- and a strength that, right. that, that, that young people it changes have a up beginning, every quarter, middle, and ending up every semester, to their college you know, experience. But sometimes, you know, stations, you know, especially the stations that sort of sit in that middle line between community and college have community volunteers who might be more calcified than yeah. the college students creating attention. But I think the, our experience here shows that you can kind of start in one direction, you can shift and you can evolve and, you, you know, in that dialogue and being open to right. that is one way in which you kind of, I hope well, you keep it fresh. Yeah. And I hope we can talk a little bit more before the hour is over about all of the wonderful new uh, attention that we've gotten here at Raised Survivor for our hard work. But I think it's time to transition towards uh, Jennifer Waits telling us, like, what's, what's the latest in college radio? I know. I feel like going back to the early days of the podcast, giving a little update on college radio <laughs> news. Well, there's there are a number of interesting stories this week that I thought were worth talking at some length about on the show. And, and firstly, just wanted to point out that Intercollegiate Broadcasting System, also known as IBS, it's a long-time college radio organization – they're hosting their 80th annual convention in New York 
in March. Hmm. So the week that this episode airs over the radio, they're having their convention in New York City. And, you know, we talked earlier about uh, how a lot of people really don't have an understanding of the deep history of college radio. So I think it's worth just pointing out that there's an organization that's been around for more than 80 years Mm -hmm. in college radio. Um, And that's as we approach... What we're sort of generally celebrating is the 100th year of radio broadcasting. Um, And we can argue certainly that that probably 100th year of even college radio broadcasting, but they've been organized together in in, in a a, a system, essentially, for 80 years. Yeah. And, you know, initially the intercollegiate broadcasting system was was founded as a way for – students who had started campus-only carrier current stations. So these were very low-power stations over AM using infrastructure in campus buildings to broadcast. Yeah, and when Jennifer says infrastructure, we're talking about uh, metal pipes, if metal not... Yep. Pipes or electricity. Electri- yep. Electrical yep. wiring. Steam pipes. <laughs> and and so these stations, and some people call them pirate radio, but these stations that were broadcasting just to their campus over AM... They they organized and started getting together at some of these local – they had some local conventions before they started having the conventions in New York City. And, and they were really banding together to try to share knowledge, share programming, and also work together to get advertising because these carrier current stations were not regulated by the FCC so they could run ads. And so that was, that was largely the reason why – the intercollegiate broadcasting system was formed and and why it has the word system in its title. Mm-hmm. And and it's broadened since then because a lot of things have happened in those 80 years and a lot of college radio stations were able to obtain FCC licenses and you know and then now you have stations that are on the internet. So they're operating in a lot of different ways and and the organization has also embraced high school broadcasters. So, yeah, 80 years later, they're still gathering and talking about the the news of the day, the concerns of the day, and and hopefully also reflecting on this incredible history. Neat. And, Jennifer, you have another piece of uh, news of the day of college radio, which might be a, a topic of conversation uh, in the halls at this conference. What um, I'm referring to a, a station that, uh, well, perceives a threat. Well, I mean, a station a station gave up its license, I would say, out of fear. So that station is WUTS-FM out of the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. Hmm. And in December, they wrote a letter to the FCC giving up their license. And, and based on Just letting it go? They didn't sell it. Yeah, just letting it go, oh, surrendering geez. their license. There's no conspiracy theory if they just let it go. They just let it go. And then as of January 29th, 2020, the FCC has listed that license as deleted. And, you know, it's a station that was first licensed in 1972. Oh my so God. Well, nearly 50-year history Ugh. has been cut short. And and so the student paper, student newspaper... Um, the Sewanee Purple wrote about this, providing some backstory, and 
you know, they uncovered that it, it seems the license was given up out of fears that there might be some public file violations. So there might be some paperwork that the station had failed to file in a timely manner. Right. And so this is for people who aren't radio people out in the audience. The FCC, you know, we're all we all know that the FCC can find you if Janet Jackson's costume malfunctions or if you use the uh, one of the dirty words that um, that George Carlin had as an, in his routine. But what's less well known is that you can sometimes just fail to do your paperwork at a radio station. Yeah, there's the right. quarterly reports that need to be filed, uh, you know, for most full power stations. And it might be a more common form of, of violation at, especially at college radio stations, yeah, that that's, don't have management. And things like ownership reports. You know, it's a lot of stuff that, you know, probably seems very mundane and arcane to the general public. Um, but these are often the things that kind of... You, you think about a college radio station run by students in particular. Um, if you have an ever-changing group of people in charge, sometimes that, that paperwork can get neglected. Right. And so... It's always good to have somebody in charge. I mean, as a college radio advisor, it was my responsibility to to make sure that was filed. But but the thing here is that you know the FCC is not a traffic cop. Okay, it's not you're not in a speed trap. There's not somebody with a radar gun wait, waiting for you to right. pass through. The, the, this this government at 10 body miles an hour. This government body is not the IRS. It's not supposed to collect revenue. It's not there exactly. To, That's a really important to make point. Money. Yeah, fines right, are there right. in order to. To encourage compliance, and they actually like radio at the FCC. This is like a fact. I yes. mean, yeah. it seemed, you would think that the government bureaucracy that's there to control radio would kind of like hate radio. You know, as much like as we it. can, we can criticize FCC leadership and decisions that are made by yeah. the commissioners who are political empl- who, yeah. uh, appointees, picked by the party in power and or the the, the party. Yeah. The 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 the, the com- five commissioners and the political head. appointees. Yeah, yeah. and. We can find the criticism. Ultimately, the charge of the employees of the commission is to support broadcast and lots of other uses of telecommunications technology and sets rules so that the system runs. This is important because next week we'll probably be picking on the FCC well, pretty but, badly. But, and, but also, uh, Chris Terry, he picks on the FCC because he thinks it can do its job better, yeah. not because he thinks there shouldn't be an FCC. So what Paul's getting at is well, that when a college and, and- radio station – oh, go ahead, Oh, and the FCC, I mean, to add to that, the FCC, since 2013, has very specifically uh, shown their compassion for student-run radio stations. Mm -hmm, So in 2013, they had a ruling where they, you know, specifically decided to give first-time student-run college radio stations making first-time violations for, you know, these relatively minor types of things – cutting them a break and, and giving them a chance to enter into a consent decree um, to pay penalties more in the range of like $1,000 to $2,500. So in recent years when student-run radio stations have neglected to file certain reports and that's come up and has been discovered later by the FCC, they haven't faced these massive fines. Oh, so, gosh. Do you know what that makes me think, though, about this particular radio station that we're talking about in Tennessee is that they can't afford but, the but $2,000 here's the other, but here's fine? The, no, 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 no. Here's no, the other no, half no. of it. The no, FCC it is, it is required to take into account 
the licensee's ability to pay. Yeah. So exactly. it, 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 it really, I mean, if I'm, and I know nothing about the school, so I'm only going out on a limb here. If I'm, you know, it sounds to me like they're ready to be done with it. And this was an excuse that they yeah. weren't willing to put, they didn't want to put forward even the little bit of staff time either, and effort yeah. well, necessary either, to kind either of comply. Well, and similarly, I, I would say that they were given some ill-informed advice um, and, and scare tactics were being used by the people who were advising them because they were told that potential FCC fines could be $15,000 at one point, which is higher than I just mentioned. And then they were also told they could be $100,000. Mm. Well, Jennifer, you mentioned the so people they were giving being them told advice. these outrageous The monkeys fines. might fly out of my butt, you and, know. But you're, you mentioned – that's an FCC violation, Paul. Um, the uh, – joking. The – you are mentioning the people giving them advice, and I think it's important to bring up now to the listeners who might not have been following every week of Radio Survivor, especially when we talked about college radio stations that we've lost, that had a long history and then were gone – most of the time when we tell this story on Radio Survivor over the last five years, it's been a station that had a large terrestrial signal in a interesting or important media market, and that signal had a monetary value that was big enough to inspire uh, the sale of the station, and they made a there was a windfall profit for the people uh, making that sale. Or even if not a windfall, it is uh, it is at least revenue positive. Revenue, yeah. yeah, and exactly, it's a unique tragedy to lose a college radio station and to find out that it wasn't even for profit because that's something we can kind of understand that's a form of uh, sad corruption we can understand in this country i know well and just to let it go and and what and what saddens me is that this comes soon after a similar case at denison university wdub they sold their fm license for five thousand dollars in december 2019 and it was amid similar fears about potential FCC fines. And, and who did they so, sell it to? Do you know? Yeah, and how much was it really worth? Oh, I don't have that on the. Yeah, I don't sorry. have that at hand right yeah, now. Yeah, I mean, cause this is an important point. Okay, um, when a license is deleted, it really is deleted. So right. I can't go to the FCC today if I if I were to live in right. Swanee. If you wanted to pick it up for five thousand bucks, you would have had a. It was a better deal to get it. Before they right. deleted the thing, because now, now so, it's, it, oh, it, it well, doesn't to, exist. Period. Oh, just to give a PS on the w, WDUB at Denison, um, it was sold to Ohio State University, oh. uh, which part of their WOSU public media. So it stayed public there. media at a the very move, least. Yeah. At the very least, but but an impo- a thing that could happen. Let's say, for instance, um, at at in Swanee, um, at the University of the South, is that. They could have given the license to a community group, yeah. to a community radio Jeez group, Louise. to a group of alumni or even interested students who are willing to do the time and energy to uh, create a nonprofit to take over the license. Like well, the license doesn't even have to this, be sold. It could have been sold just to an interested dollar, community group yeah. willing exactly. to go on with the services. And, and while we're recording this – there, I, I've been told by others that there's still time actually to file a petition for reconsideration, in which case they could have the license returned back to the school and then the school could sell it to somebody else. Yeah, but the school would have to do it. 
a third there, party there would is have not going to be, be some, able to carry that off. There would have to be some organizing effort from the community that cared with, about the With station. the school. Yeah. With the right. school cooperation. And this has happened before at Reed College. Reed yes. College turned back a license to the FCC. Yeah, Reed is and important And then Common Frequency convinced them to get the license back and then donate it to Common Frequency. And and so now that Our, now that if I'm channel not mistaken, is still available Radio in Survivor we now air on, on that, that frequency <laughs> on X-Ray FM. That is that is the frequency so that became X-Ray FM, a community radio station here in Portland, Oregon, where where people hear Radio Survivor. Yeah, so that's a that we've tied we've tied the bow on that one real nicely. The Reed College radio station uh, is significant to me in my radio love and life because uh, they that's the origin of Doctor Demento, the DJ who introduced a Weird Al Yankovic to the world from his syndicated radio show of comedy songs. Uh, Dr. Demento got his start in radio at the Reed College radio station. That's but, right. And Weird Al also got his start in college radio as well at KCPR at um, Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. So, so our advice go. is to stations, especially non-commercial stations, is uh, before getting rid of your license out of fears that you'll be fined, make some calls to the media bureau at the Federal Communications Commission and begin a dialogue to find out one, will you be fined, period, yeah. and two, Began what you can do to come into yeah. compliance, Aww. right? Because, again, it, it, the FCC does not really want licenses to be turned back in. That's not the business they're in. They want licenses to be used responsibly. They want licenses to be used within the realm of the law and policy and regulation. They don't really want you to turn one back in. And they're not in the business, as we've seen over and over again, uh, almost, you know, often to the chagrin of people who would wish often that their local commercial broadcasters would serve their community better. They're, the right. FCC really isn't in the business of taking stations it's off the air. And there's sword. very yeah. few examples of that happening. And it's always under extreme, extreme duress and circumstances. Yeah. And I mean, I think Radio Survivor, because of our values, how much we could, we care about people getting a chance to make radio, it just... You know, you got to imagine that somewhere in that community are five people that if you explained what was possible to them, that they would have taken up the work to keep a station going. Yeah. I just have to believe that. that I mean, just based upon how many emails we get in any given month of how can I get a radio station on the air? Not to mention kids on that, students on that campus who might have a passion for podcasting who didn't even know that their college radio uh, was. Well, and even, and even, you know, and I. I, I get the sense that this was all being discussed by administrators and the people, mm-hmm. the students at the radio station were not privy to these conversations. But but even just reaching out to the broader college radio community and college radio organizations, everyone like would have told them. Like the intercollegiate broadcast system. It's highly yeah. unlikely that you would be fined $100,000. They would get good so, advice from the people who are experienced at this. Yeah. 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 Um, Jennifer, you do have some other, which sounds to me like, good news and it's about a station I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with so i'm really uh anxious to hear more yeah you know I, I went down a research rabbit hole because i saw mention of a radio station that existed in the 1980s called wbml where black music lives at university of illinois that was it was started by students when some of the programming that they liked was eliminated from the college radio station so they started up their own station focused on on music that they wanted to hear and and so i started researching this a bit more and and found out that 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 station is getting resurrected 
um, after probably being off the air for maybe maybe less than five years, WBML at University of Illinois. And that, I think, is great news that um, it, it was part of this cultural center that was torn down and has been rebuilt. And so I think now it's an opportunity for them to to build up the station again. It, it was a project of the African-American Cultural Program at University of Illinois, started in 1982 and, and was over cable at 89.3 FM, and then eventually was on local cable TV as well. And around 1999, it was, it was being billed as Champaign, Urban, Urbana Champaign, Illinois' premier source of hip-hop, reggae, jazz, R&B, and gospel music. Hmm. So a really interesting station. Um, you know, so originally it was kind of campus only, and then it was out in the local community through a deal with Time Warner. Um, so it was in all the residence halls via this this cable. I have and, deep um, background on this, Jennifer. <laughs> and yeah. then it was on the Music Choice System in Champaign-Urbana on Channel 36. So, yeah, Paul, were you listening to the station? Well, I tried. Um, so I lived in Champaign-Urbana, uh, home of the University of Illinois, from 1993 to 2008. And I was aware of WBML, although I had uh, made many attempts to try and listen, often had difficulty because it seemed as though it could be on and off and difficult to tune in. Cable radio, as it was broadcast on, on campus, wasn't the most reliable service. That's of no fault to them. Um, at the same time, I operated a foreign language TV channel that also went over campus cable for the University of Illinois Foreign Languages Department. So I was actually responsible for one of the TV channels on this campus cable system, which at least in until somewhere into the late 90s was not a very good or reliable system. <laughs> and But I knew about WBML and I had made some outreaches at the time because uh, I was interested in talking uh, with folks for my radio show on the community radio, community radio station there, WEFT. That's a good fit. Where I covered uh, yeah all sorts of community media, and I never quite uh, made the connection. Uh, was able to quite talk with someone, although I was always uh, excited about the idea. I only heard it in glimpses. So that yeah, it's fun news. Yeah, it's cool. And and so, uh, just a couple weeks ago, they had an announcement posted. WBML, where Black Media lives. So in recent years, they've changed, they've broadened. So it's it's not just Black music; it's Black me- Black media. Hmm. Um, and so they said, have you ever wanted to host your own radio show, podcast, or DJ your favorite playlist? Well, this is your chance. We're celebrating black media and music by relaunching our radio station. So they were having a meeting, um, on Monday, February 17th. So one would, it would, one would assume that, that the station is getting ready to relaunch, which is pretty cool. Communities coming together over shared passions for sound and culture. Mm-hmm. At, that's what we're here to talk about here on Radio Survivor. We have about seven, no, we have about six minutes left of the show today. And I wanted to, I promised earlier in the episode that we would, um, that we would talk a little bit more about some recent attention that Radio Survivor has been getting that is positive in nature and how, um, you know, uh, I think it reveals something about doing the work of the doing the work that we do and sort of as an encouragement to others to do work that they're passionate about. Um, we started off by talking about the AV Club article that recognized 
uh, our recent episode of uh, where we talked about the historically black colleges and universities uh, archiving of their radio sounds. And that was uh, an episode that we were proud of uh, before it got recognized by the AV Club. And now, you know, what a nice cherry on top to know that someone out there liked it so much that they wanted to share with their audience. Um, we've also recently, and regular listeners will already know this, um, the Library of Congress just uh, this year has launched a preservation of podcasting project, which I think it's fair to call like a pilot project or it's in the beginning stages. And we and that um, that fact in and of itself would have been something that Radio Survivor would have really cared about. But on top of that, again, another cherry on top, uh, Radio Survivor, the show itself, was picked as one of those uh, initial podcasts to be preserved. And, and that's how we found out about the project, yeah, which exactly. is so exciting that, you know, we would, yeah, you're right. We would have been excited to find out about the project, but to find out about it while we were being asked to be a part of it was kind of next level. Yeah. And it's, I, I am going to assume, although we never asked, um, maybe our guests didn't know, but I'm assuming that it's partly based on the fact that Radio Survivor has such a huge passion and respect for the people who work at the Library of Congress, as well as people who work in radio preservation. And we've done so many episodes with so many numerous guests that have relations with both of those uh, worlds that, of course, Radio Survivor would be a good fit for the beginning of that project. But it's also, to me, I wanted to tell this as like an allegory, as the moral of the story is, do the work that you're passionate about and do it because you care about it. And... um you, you know, you'll also start with that when you want when you're thinking about podcasting or radio or anything. Start with the passion and then uh, work your way outwards from there towards um, the uh, the recognition or the audience or the um, awards and uh, awards and treats. The other thing that happened that was nice was um, my interview with Eric Newsom, who uh, wrote a book called Make Noise, which was uh, about four episodes ago, and it's uh, Eric Newsom ran. NPR podcasts efforts at the beginning of that uh, National Public Radio Network, you know, really diving in to the uh, radio on demand world. And then Eric Newsom was uh, brought in to uh, work at Amazon's Audible for three years. And then Eric wrote this book that I interviewed him about. And um, that uh, that was recognized by uh, the other uh, media entity of record in the podcasting world. Um, it's Pod News, right, Paul? Pod News, yes. Pod, Written pod by news. James Cridlin, a uh, radio futurologist who also writes international uh, radio newsletter in addition to Pod News. Yeah. And that was really nice. I mean, A, for me, what was so special about that is that I worked really hard on that interview, uh, more so than uh, you know the average episode of Radio Survivor. I put in a, a, full, a full week's work to prepare for this interview, and um, I cared about it a lot. And I thought that... Um, in a lot of ways, it was a very interesting turning point for me working on Radio Survivor uh, because here was an interview that was important to me to do, but I think it also, by focusing on it, refocused me on what we do mm-hmm. here on our radio show It was podcast. a fantastic interview. I think he did a great job. Uh, Eric Newsom was a great guest because I do think he thinks deeply about audience and while he comes from National Public Radio, which has done great work in podcasting, but is often, you know, 
unfairly cited well, as they were a late podcasting. to the game, right? Oh, no, no so I that's mean, what's would, interesting. I would not call them so late I'm, to I think, the game. Okay, I'm thinking about 15 years ago. I would not call them late to the game 15 yeah, years ago. But they might have had a reputation for not jumping on the opportunity for online. No, 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 not at all, in fact. Uh, no, I don't think anyone views so them So you were going to talk about the opposite, which is that they're kind of viewed as big footing around the world of podcasts. Yeah, well, in, in, in part, you know, uh, folks will often cite them as sort of an originator of podcasting, in part because... NPR or rather public radio shows, Have which often charting. get lumped in together. They've been charting forever. Well, before even there was a chart. Yeah. It's the point that early on, public radio was less afraid of podcasting than commercial radio. Okay. Let's make – and so shows like This American Life, which is not an NPR show, started posting their their weekly shows as podcasts in addition to them only being available on radio. They were they were up on the internet before it was podcasts. Right. Okay. <laughs> As well, NPR, under, under Eric Newsom's guidance, took advantage of this circumstance. And those shows became popular in part because people already knew of them. They yeah. had brand recognition. They Also, they had to some extent some ability to publicize themselves on the radio, although that was very controversial for many years. Yeah. Local NPR right. affiliates were not happy about they it. They also became popular because they were of uh, they professional, were high, were professional quality. quality. But because of that recognition uh, – folks who were not aware of the great sort of grassroots of podcasting right. often thought, well, podcasting, uh, what well, it must have been something which, you know, NPR and public radio sort of invented, right? Which, which is not quite, uh, which is not quite the well, story. Tune into Radio Survivor more often. But anyway, you know but story. I still want to, you know, provide, I said that as a way of giving kudos to Eric Newsom. Because I believe he has always thought broadly and deeply about audience and how public radio could further its mission as public radio through podcasting, not as a way of dominating or being a 900-pound gorilla, but as a way of furthering its mission. And I think a lot of the shows that they debuted under his watch as podcasts first um, exemplify that. They are in the NPR style. They are forever going to be in that kind of NPR style. And we, and that's fine. But I don't think that Eric Newsom as a person, the advice he gives is broader than that and more applicable than that. And I love that anecdote that you both talk about at the end of that interview of him talking about someone who's making a podcast of the their yeah. office gossip specifically for their one colleague who is out on maternity leave. Yeah, well, to listen to that episode of Radio Survivor uh, in its entirety, you can go to our website, radiosurvivor.com. We have a minute left for our radio audience. Uh, radio Survivor is online as a podcast. You can always subscribe to it anywhere where you get your podcast. Yeah, podcasts. so but let's tell people, if you've never used a podcast before and you're hearing the show, go to you can go to Stitcher, you can go to Spotify, you can go to Apple Podcasts, or you can listen online at our, on our website, radiosurvivor.com. Always free to listen to on any of those platforms, including our website. You can email us at... Uh, Podcast, podcast at radiosurvivor.com and you can also reach us out on the social medias be them twitter or facebook we're there for you uh thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and uh, my name is eric klein with me are my colleagues paul reese mandel and jennifer waits and we'll see you next week to talk about our love of radio and sound and now we have another five minutes or so for the podcast audience if we had anything else we wanted to tell oh, them. Well, I I was just going to do a PS that I was very excited that you talked about Eric Newsom's college radio origin story on that episode. And I really enjoyed hearing that and, and hearing about how he kind of 
found his way into working at a public radio station while he was working at a college radio station. So yeah, that I, was, I appreciate that. Thank you, Jennifer. Well, here's, here's another thing I can say to the audience about like why I love podcasts so much. And you know, it's not just podcasts, but like, I'm so lucky that this work is here for me by joining forces with you and with Paul and with Matthew, uh, who doesn't join us as often on the radio as we would like, because he works so hard teaching, uh, by joining forces with you and working on this project together, you know, I've, I'm, I'm better at this than I would be by myself, which is also a story. I of think that's radio. a point that we failed to get to in the radio portion yeah. was the collaborative effort. And often, you know, looking at the, the things that can calcify at a community radio station right. are often, you know, single person right. shows. Collaboration where, is so important. You know, and, and I've also heard ones calcify that, that weren't, uh, that were team efforts, but you know, what I've seen, uh, shows be able to do, uh, what comes to mind now is the, uh, the hip hop show at W, uh, uh, KGNU yeah. in Boulder, which is uh, ostensibly the oldest uh, still running hip hop show, right, which we've covered on two episodes of Radio Survivor. Yeah. One we talked about them with the Ryan McMichael of the Hip Hop Radio Archive, and uh, write it down in your notebook. And because uh, Paul has to uh, make sure that we get the link to it on the show notes, as well as uh, we did it because of that episode with Ryan McMichael, we had a whole episode devoted entirely to the job to. Um, what was this name of that hip hop show? I love. The I, name. I don't know offhand. Um, but the point I wanted to make is that they continuously took on new hosts. The Eclipse yeah. Show. The Eclipse Show. Show. Yeah. Right. Longest running hip hop radio show in 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 the country on a on WGNU. KGNU. Which, K, yeah. KGNU in Boulder, Colorado, um, and the what? I think that that's an important point to its survival is the ability to take on fresh blood, fresh ideas, especially in, in an evolving genre that that was not mainstream at the time the show started, is now, of course, utterly mainstream, right. but is so prismatic that there are many elements of the genre and artists and, and yeah. subgenres that are not mainstream, right? It is well, yeah, gone to, the, to many different places. Yeah, and the show has changed tremendously. You know, the music it was playing in the early years was... Probably not what you would think of as hip hop necessarily, but it always had kind of a. It was the music that would be tri- uh, sampled by hip hop in years to come. Probably, yeah. Uh, but it always had like a public, um, like a social justice element to it and public affairs uh, programming. Um, but yeah, it's it's morphed and, and now you're hearing mix shows and, you know, as well as elements of what it was in the beginning and it's Mm -hmm. a it's a community of people that that do that show that's why paul jumped in to talk about it because he was so excited that here's a show that's been on the radio at a community radio station that has maintained its focus but it also they kept they've always passed the torch Mm -hmm. to new hosts that could be passionate about it and bring in new people and and they've never it you doesn't know, always mean someone has to sign off, right? Because we've right? seen because we've seen people go down with the ship in yeah. in community radio. It doesn't mean 
folks have to sign off. It doesn't right. It isn't out with the old and with the new. I think it's more about injecting fresh perspectives and changing up uh, the mix, changing up the dialogue, and adding new voices to it, and not looking at it as a zero sum game. Where if we brought in somebody, one other person, well now I'm going to lose my twenty minutes or something. Yeah. And now and now you know and 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 to be guarded and to think about it as as a jealous landlord, right? I think instead. Right. Um, a, a more open perspective gives you more opportunity as well to to keep that thing glad. in the spirit in which maybe it was originally created. I'm glad we went down this path. The, the 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 line I was on before we started talking about the was that just that um that here was a question that I was so excited to ask the guest on my podcast, and it would not have occurred to me without uh 230 episodes behind me. Uh, the majority of which I collaborated with someone who had a different set of passions. And so because I, you know, because working together, Jennifer, I know that every time we've accidentally or on purpose because of your work stumbled into the question, tell me more about your past in college radio. Um, I knew when I read Eric Newsom's book and I saw that he had any experience in college radio, which he only mentioned in passing, he didn't include one detail. He just said it existed. But I knew that that was an, a great question for him on our show and um well i love that you kept probing him too because when yeah. you initially asked him about it it was sparse the details yeah. were very sparse and you loop back to it i think at least two times to like but no i really want to find out more about that and what was the station name and what happened there right well, um i'm always intrigued by that whenever we have a guest who has a college radio background and i think often Often guests light up in a different way when they're talking about their college radio experience, and it it yeah, just no. sheds a different perspective on things. I don't think it's going. I don't think I'm telling stories out of school to say that Eric Newsom was a uh, was a consummate professional, a best-selling author on a book tour, who definitely came to the room with a certain set of talking points and stuck with them, <clears throat> and getting Eric Newsom to stick to answering my questions about college radio was. Uh, engaged a new part of his brain that I don't think anybody else on the book tour had gotten a chance to do. And I saw one, I, you know, he was very nice and he smiled a lot, but I saw a different light in Eric Newsom's eyes when I forced him to remember college radio than the other answers to the questions. And I think that's so, a good, that's a good sort of tip for interviewers too, that if, if you're talking to somebody who is, on a book tour or, you know, there to talk about a specific thing, uh, to think about a different type of question that you can ask that is going to, yeah, maybe, maybe spark a more creative answer. And I mean, for us, I think, you know, Eric Newsom has a, uh, what, what, uh, you know, I'm going to both say this ironically, but also genuinely, Eric Newsom has had an important career in radio and, for most people who've had that kind of career, the story of what they did at college radio is a footnote or less, partly because of what we talk about on this show all the time. The The popular notion of what college radio is, is uh, not considered to be serious or as serious as other forms of radio. So Eric Newsom's official origin story that he's written himself and probably has also been written with him with publicists, if not friends, begins with his first radio job, but he had a role in radio prior to his first paying gig. And, and I wanted to know more about that. And it, you know, he got to share that. And it, and it, and it appeared to be, uh, 
pivotal. I mean, it appeared yeah. to be important in, in, in that what he emphasized was how it gave him this opportunity to experiment and find his to be voice, playful. to be playful and find his voice. And that's a part that gets left out in many of these stories. If you think about someone like Ira Glass, who is now very well renowned and respected in, in radio and podcasting circles for the creation of This American Life. And Ira's been very good about speaking about his early years and trying to find his voice and his experiments and his failures. And he's um, been very open about that over the years. And I think that's important. And some of that was in college radio. And some of it was just sort of trying trying to emulate right other things until he realized that he couldn't do it the way uh, he heard national public radio people do it in, in, the, in the, like the early to mid-'80s. Uh, and what we forget is that while – the style of broadcasting represented by This American Life is nearly canonical yeah. to podcasters, or at least a certain set of podcasters today. When it debuted in 1995, it was nearly heretical, right? Program directors would not take the show because the speech was so naturalistic, yeah. because he left in the stammers and the uhs. Which, and- in fact, were was just a performance of naturalistic speech that was... You know, we know now, from, I know from studying This American Life and reading everything that there is to read about it yeah. in, at a certain point in time. Yeah, it was that, an artistic choice. That they would edit out some stutters but leave in others. Yeah, and exactly. It, and in some ways, Ira Glass's entire way of performing as the host of the show was a performance of naturalism. Right. I mean, on the one hand, I think which it was— Which is fine, it which was, is good. I'm it not was an honest—I think, think it was and is an honest reflection of his actual speech yeah. patterns and emblematic of his— of where he felt un- dishonest in trying to emulate, you know, what you would have heard on uh, Morning Edition at the time, uh, but it was it was heretical. And while yeah. Chicago Public Radio was willing to take a risk on this new program, very few stations at yeah. the time were willing um, to do so. I think one of the other things that I wanted to talk about with you guys before we wrap up on the podcast today is just that, like. The things that I that I learned from reading Eric Newsom's book, Make Noise, and also from the interview, and also from your feedback, your positive feedback from the interview, um, is just that um, doubling down on the notion of uh, focusing on your mission as a broadcaster or podcaster as it relates to your audience. And I know that, you know, on day one, when Paul Reismandel and I sat down at a coffee shop to talk about starting the podcast, we were excited about our audience of radio loving. We call them radio nerds on our show. We had an episode, um, I think, about a year and a day ago, where we discovered that in the United Kingdom they call them radio anoraks, right? So it's another, it's a synonym for a radio lover or radio nerd, and um, anorak is. The kind of coat, yes, that it's they like wear. A, yeah, well, it's it's like a rain rain jacket, and uh, it, kind of kind of like a poncho, only nicer because it's because it's like bird watchers yeah. would wear that coat, or train spotters would wear that coat. So anoraks were people that stood out in the rain. Yeah, I guess. Well, and, it's England. Yeah. So it's nearly always raining. So right? a radio anorak, because I don't think radio anoraks stand out in the rain to enjoy their radio. I think the anorak, well, you know, adjusting their antennas. But anyway. Um, we knew that there were radio lovers out there that we wanted to make shows for. And even though we've all, we've, we've shifted our direction, we've developed, we've learned so much in the process. And also some weeks we forget what to do. Um, knowing that we're 
that the point is the love of radio and sound, even before we had come up with those three words, uh, has always driven the work. And it's just a it's it's a, always a useful way to think about starting any project is uh, what are you trying to share with your audience and um, how are you going to get it to them? And then also like why you is something that Eric Newsom asked hmm. in his book that I thought hmm. was every every broadcaster should answer that question. I'm going to do it because I love because I've had this experience of, you know, eight years at a community radio station changed my life and getting the chance to do community radio um you know, connected me to the world in a way that I felt disconnected prior to my experiences. And I wanted to get that back and also share it and learn, you know, I also needed a project. I needed a new community. And so being a part of Radio Survivor got to um, get me there. I sat on a community radio programming committee for five years. And the hardest question, every time someone would come in to basically propose a show and it was made, decisions were made by a committee of volunteers who gets on, who does not. And so you propose a show, which meant filling out a form, then you would come and, and you'd, you'd present, right? You'd, you'd tell. And the hardest question most of the time for every single person who came in was, who is your audience? Who would listen and why? And it, it, they could tell us why they thought the show was great. They could tell us about what they wanted to do and why their idea was fantastic and what fantastic music and resources they would have, et cetera, right? Which, which is all real and true. The hardest question, they would always come in and say, well, who, who, who's going to listen and why? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, you know, I think it's still a hard question. Right. And it's, you know what's important is that it never should be used as a way to stop someone. No, it was it, – it, pe- plenty of people who couldn't really answer the question still got on the air. Yeah. It should never be used as a way to stop you. Yeah. But it is a very useful question to ponder mm-hmm. as you propel yourself yeah, towards starting. And if you have more – I mean I think about this with Radio Survivor. If you can answer it with a lot of different constituencies, then that's fantastic. Like you think about some mm-hmm. of our – college or some of our historical or preservation related episodes you can think of a lot of different communities who might be interested historians archivists college radio practitioners and you know i if you're trying to grow an audience and you can think about it that way like are there a lot of different types of people who might find their way to this episode and right and that's helpful and then, you know, the other thing, I, I, I don't mind that this got cut off from the hour-long edit, and I'm perfectly excited for it to show up in the podcast edit, is that all of this was also supposed to illustrate a point that I wanted to make about Radio Survivor's audience size, especially online, that um, is also a hidden theme of our podcast and show that we've always t- – it's not hidden. We've talked about it before explicitly, is that sometimes the work that you're doing is going to be so targeted and so specifically well done – that it's not going to uh, grow to the size that you might have dreamed it needed to grow to, especially um, you know when there's a when there's a a benchmark, a certain benchmark to to be able to uh, you know get advertising dollars to fund your project or even to get uh, you know crowdfunding money to make it a full time job or a part time job. But um, when you're that specific, it also gives you. Uh, well, one of the things I learned from reading Eric Newsom's book is that it gives you a lot of opportunities to grow your audience because you know who you're trying to tell about your show. And you might have, you know, if, you, if you're like, I want everyone to love it, you don't know who you're going to try to tell about your show. But if you know, I want all the radio lovers to love it, well, now we know 
you know, we don't necessarily know who to go looking for, but we get to start to know where to find them. Yeah, there's a direction there, which I think um, is super vital. And, you but, know, we have seen audience growth. That's sort of what you're alluding yeah. to. And, you know, it's been kind of, it's been, we've, it's been sort of more remarkable in the last uh, 12 to 18 months than it had been previously. Right. But also to find out that someone in our audience of our, of, of our, I'm going to say it, a very small audience. Let's compare, yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's, you know, it's, it's all relative. Subject, it's man. all relative. But that one person in our very small audience told somebody who told somebody else yeah. to get the Library of Congress to preserve us. Or one person in our very small audience wrote an article about us in the AV Club newsletter yeah. because they share our passion. And we're no less committed to three listeners than we are to 30 or 30,000. Right. And the other part that is harder for us to count because on the internet we have we have numbers, right? We know how many downloads. We've yeah. got a, a host that provides us with uh, with uh, IAB V2 certified stats that we, you know, that that the industry says are are uh, reliable. Um, we also, you know, this, we're on 29 radio stations now, right. but plus I, 29 uh, licensed stations, never mind a, a dozen or so uh, internet and 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 uh, legal low power stations, which means, you know, we're reaching all that many more people. And there's all these stations who've been willing to come forward and be nice enough to, to uh, take an hour. Let's have an hour of airtime. Yeah. And I, the, the other thing I wanted to, I mean, one of the reasons I just want to drive this point home is that I've actually been repeating myself often to different clients and friends who I work with on podcasts that you don't necessarily want a thousand listeners. You want, the listeners that you want. And if you make a podcast that is good enough and specific enough, you know, y- you can have 10 listeners, but those 10 listeners could be like the exact people that you need to hear your message. And, uh, you know, it's, know, know your, know yeah. what your objectives are. So 10 people, and be true to them. 10 people listening is a victory when you know why you started the work. Yeah. And if you started the work because you wanted to be popular, well, then you have a, a different hill to climb that is, uh, yeah. And, and so I, I, you know, and the reason I'm a little obsessed with this and want to talk about it again, because I had friends uh, four years ago that started a podcast and they didn't want to be popular. They really had a passion for one thing that they were trying to communicate. But when I asked one of the leaders of that program, what they wanted, they said they wanted to be popular. And if they had realized that what they actually wanted was to have this one passion, then when they only had whatever it was, six dozen listeners, two dozen listeners, they would have known that that was a success. But it wasn't – they didn't get hundreds of listen, you know, whatever it was. And it just it, – it, it was a tension that I never resolved. It's a it's an that's one audience that's not listening to me right now is the producers of those podcasts in the past that I was helping out with who didn't recognize that – they had a great idea for a niche audience and they missed the opportunity to focus on that idea. And I think partly because the the commonly held – this is another reason we keep yelling into microphones about podcasts every week. I feel like the dominant narrative of internet radio is like – and we talked about this I think on episode one – is like buy your microphones and grow like wildfire. And it's nice, and some people really have changed their lives by buying microphones and plugging them in to the internet. But it's it's not the only reason to do this. 
And you know, Eric, you know what else you're, you're reminding me of last week's episode where we were talking about community access radio in New Zealand and that they have some shows that are so niche that they're actually reaching 100% of their audience. Yeah, exactly. You know, and that is a huge success. And it might not be that many listeners, but, you know, right. if you're focused like that. That particular diaspora community in New Zealand is tuned in. Yep. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and that's, 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 that's really inspiring. It's such a great reminder that about, you know, what is success. So I'm glad you brought that up. Well, thank you all for sticking with us for uh, some extra minutes. Uh, we hope you got something from this discussion. We enjoyed having it, and we think there's something to be gotten. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. This was going to yeah. be a bonus episode. Let us, know your, let us know your radio passions. But we didn't bonus it. We decided everyone uh, should be in on it. But we do have bonus episodes up on our Patreon page, which is at patreon.com slash radiosurvivor. Right. You can listen to the unedited version of my Eric News interview where i uh do nothing but confess all my fears in the first 15 minutes so of the you basically interview. <laughs> you owe eric newsom uh, 150 dollars an hour for therapy is what what uh, came out of it you know he i actually think it was worth it because my fears were uh what is this radio show all about eric newsom you know stuff and he answered the question and then we got rolling and yeah. uh you know, if you like the interview that you, if you like the edit you heard, it's uh, funny to think of um, all of the mistakes I made ten minutes before. So we pull back the curtain yeah. even more. Uh, go to Patreon.com/slash Radio Survivor. Help keep this enterprise going. Um, thank you for spending some time with us. Thanks. <laughs>